I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch your museum of discarded body parts. Hey, Peter. Hey, Aaron. How you doing, man? Good. Sam, how are you doing? Great. (laughs) <laughs> Should we do the whole show? We'll just, just, we can we can just go back and forth imitating Sam's voice. Yeah, uh, the viewers can't see that I'm whatever Sam vote talks, for I Trump. And... <laughs> Sam, Sam, I have no idea. This is not a political podcast. I don't know why you would start out that way. Um, it's definitely you... a political podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> Shh. Uh, we're trying to trick people into that. Just accidentally, our viewpoints absorb into them at some point. I just wanted to hear about '80s movies. And then all of a sudden I decided to not vote for Trump <laughs> and respect what happens. Yeah. So Sam Scott, who we announced many times was going to be on this show, uh, is not able to make it. He's not feeling well. We wish him a speedy recovery and we hope to have him on uh, at some point in the near future. Uh, we'll still link to his uh, his great articles over at the salute. But it'll just be a Peter and Aaron fun around hour. Why are you saying I'm not here? Shut up, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> is this a hazing technique? This is this is because you said you were going to vote for Trump. <laughs> we're going to mute you on the final product of all of this. It's going to be seamless. This is, you know, it's worse than being dead. Being dead to us on our podcast. Yeah, you've we, you've been blocked from listening on iTunes. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Just write, just write in. They'll get it. They'll, they'll understand. <laughs> just I- explain, explain the situation. We invited Sam on our podcast and he started saying all this pro-Trump rhetoric and they'll be like, he's, he's banned. His phone's just going <laughs> to blow up. Yeah. His phone's just going to blow up in his hand. <laughs> Is, they can hit a button and turn his phone into a Galaxy Note 7. Oh, that's the the worst punishment of all. <laughs> this is solid banter. We don't need Sam. Yeah, we don't need Sam. We just need paint fumes. Oh yeah, that's right. So why don't we just say it now? So Peter's apartment, the the apartment below you is getting painted. Painted, or they're redoing the floors. There's some sort of varnish, uh, fume smell coming up through the floors. And I took a peek outside, and all the renovators left all the windows closed. So do you know where fumes go when they don't go out? Uh, into they your go, heart, where wishes come true. Yeah, they go into, through your nose. They go into a wish well. <laughs> yep. Um, they go straight up into the apartment above. So uh, I'm not even sleeping in the current place I'm recording tonight because it's just the smell is so bad. Uh, is your girlfriend staying there? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not staying. <laughs> Secretly, um, I just want a good night's sleep. Yeah, on, she's on a friend's couch. Yeah, now. she's already asleep. I'm not telling her, but. <laughs> Yeah, and I I w- uh, did the dumb thing to and decided to watch the third presidential uh, debate tonight, which the spookiest uh, the, of movies, the spookiest of all. Yep, uh, which is just a horror show. And so I decided, hey, I usually have a couple drinks for the podcast. Um, I'm going to start earlier than normal. So uh, I think we're both fine right now. But if by the end of this, there's a lot of weird edits to cover slurring or someone passing out suddenly, that could happen. Just accept it, guys. Yeah. Like the protagonist of David Cronenberg's The Fly, (laughs) which is the movie we're doing today, uh, our bodies are slowly falling apart. Aaron's from the inside out. and uh, Yours yours also from the inside out. Also from (laughs) the inside out. Yeah, Yeah, we're doing doing Cronenberg's The Fly for take two months. It's it's good to work backwards, as always. (laughs) We've been doing this podcast for six months. Peter, let's just let's get it on the record now. Do you We're think no there's, do you think there's ever going to be a chance that we 
announce titles and months and and everything else like professionals at doing a podcast. No. Okay. Yep. No, all my money's <laughs> on that too. I, I didn't even take notes last week, and this week I was like, I'm definitely taking notes, and my, my notes are garbage. Uh, yeah, and I have never seen any of these movies yeah. that we've covered. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what science and research means. Uh, t- there's no watch, except in the title of our show. Ignore that, but the research that we do is primarily just reading. We use the cliff notes. I had a friend in, in college, uh, and I use the word friend really loosely, person that I hung out with a What's bunch. his... Uh, it- just just so everyone so that everyone can judge if you were good friends with him or not, what's his full name and his uh his Facebook login? <laughs> <laughs> it's beep beep, McBeep Beep. And uh his Oh, from the Vermont is... Beep Beeps? <laughs> yes. <laughs> from we were, we were watching Andy Christ or Salo or some horror movie, and he would look up on Wikipedia the plot of the movie to help prepare himself for the what was coming and then go oh, man, this is going to get way worse. We're like, it was so irritating to have someone in the corner just, like, act like the world's worst oracle and just be like, oh, man, this this is going to be really bad for you guys. Um, So maybe the paint fumes or my alcohol, but I was pretty sure you just said Andy Christ. Andy Christ? <laughs> and I was like, is that someone you went to college with? Um, I know you went to a, a Catholic university, but it still seems like... Surprising, surprising last name. Yeah, I feel like naming your children after, you know, Jesus Christ himself. Uh, usually you would like, if you're Hispanic, you would name your son Jesus. Or if you were, you know, uh, a Muslim and you want to name your child after Muhammad, you would name him Muhammad. You wouldn't be like, my son's name is Andy and his last name now is Christ. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the family are all Johnsons, but we wanted him to succeed where the Johnsons have failed. <laughs> if you named your kid Andy Christ, you would definitely be a Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guys, this is going to be a fully fume themed episode. Um, so, yeah, let's jump into it. Um Let's start talking about our Spooktober watching. You, like a huge asshole without a kid to take care of, um, have already crossed the threshold. You've watched 31 new movies, right? No, I'm actually at 30 new, 33 repeats. So I have one more, I have one more, and then I've hit 31 new So you're basically, you you might as well have not watched any at this point. Yeah. (laughs) Might as well just jump off a fucking bridge. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it is the, it's the 19th day, so feels like you're a little ahead of the game. I still have my list of what I want to watch this month is 50, and I'm at, like I said, 33, so I would still have to step up the pace to watch everything I want to watch this month. I want to, I want to note that you started this month. I think saying that you had seen 45 last year, 42, 43, 43. And you're like, but that was with 24 hours of horror. There's no way I'm going to get close to that this year. And (laughs) it appears that, uh, what, what would your count be like this year? If you had gone to 24 hours of horror, let's say there are 10 movies. It probably would be 43 right now with 12 days to go. Yeah. That's, uh, that's because insane. it would have been. I'd assume I'd go for you know. Let's say I went for ten of them. I would be around forty three. Yeah, that's that's insane in the in the <laughs> membrane. I'm just jealous. I guess I have a kid. <laughs> well, it's weird. Like you're putting down a legacy, and I uh, I'm putting down a legacy on a letterboxed list that has three likes. So. Uh, um, one's going to live forever. Who's really will last? Yeah, one's going to live forever. Yeah. And one is because one is on the internet. <laughs> yep. So, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Which one can we be prouder of? Yeah, I mean, 
500 years from now, no one's going to know about my daughter. <laughs> but I, I imagine people will be looking at your letterbox list. That That's the future utopia that I envision. <laughs> but, like, I imagine an alien race comes through and doesn't understand, like, portmanteaus or puns. And they just see, uh, they finally translate English and they're like, what the fuck is Spooktober? And they just throw the this part of the internet that contains uh, my lists right in the in the garbage pile. Moist rectums turn this man into a legume. <laughs> what is that? That's how they're going to translate wet butts drive me nuts. Oh, God, I'm an idiot. Yeah, that's the fumes. That is, I'm, I'm fuming. I mean, you still laughed quite a bit. So clearly you still have the uh, sense of humor of a four-year-old. It um, was a Monty. It was a Monty Python kind of thing. Where it's just like, I don't know what that means, but it's British and funny. And moist rectums turn me into a legume instead of a nut. Humor's great when you explain it slowly. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. The best kind of lulls. Yeah, are the lulls that you just have to like break apart. Yeah, my my favorite episode of Seinfeld is the one where the half hour sitcom is followed by a three hour explanation of the jokes. Uh, <laughs> they did it once. They had nothing else that night on Thursdays at NBC. Uh, great app. Great app, NBC. Yeah. Great app. Round yeah. of applause. Yeah, they were like, so pretzels uh, ha- contain salt. And sometimes if you eat a lot of them, you need to drink liquid, which 73% of your body is made of. And that is why Kramer said that uh, he was thirsty from eating all of those uh, salty snacks. Three hours of that. <laughs> that would be my favorite. Would my be, favorite up. <laughs> that would be uh, painful in every regard. Uh, but it would also really help explain to new people why Seinfeld is funny in an objective manner. It would, it would be great. Yeah, because... They never released it on DVD, but if they had, you know, sometimes you get into discussions with people and they're like, you know, I just never found Seinfeld funny. You could be like, what are you doing between the hours of 9 p.m. and midnight next Tuesday? We're going to watch something. (laughs) So the human body absorbs water when it's (laughs) submerged in water. And um, sometimes uh, when that water happens to be a uh, lower temperature, the the human genitals can shrink up uh, to contract to hold on. I'm taking notes. Go a little slower. (laughs) And um, I don't know what this is in relation to. I'm just interested in these facts. So, (laughs) so, you know, uh, Cold water might cause genital shrinkage. We'll have diagrams to show people, you know, George George Costanza's normal size penis, and then, um, you know, after he's been, you, in you the, don't know if he has a normal water. size penis. Yeah, it might have been a big excuse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. Sure. I uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of amazed that's never been a Tim and Eric sketch where they like do three minutes of like a uh, comedy routine and then spend twenty seven minutes explaining all the jokes. Featured in the scene. Even Tim and Eric uh, have ma- have limits to their sadism. Okay, well. And maybe on Wonder Show. I could see a Wonder Show as an episode. Well, like yeah. That, yeah. Like, a pa- like a patience level yeah. uh, episode. Either of those, those teams would be perfectly suited to torturing the American public with uh, the definition of anti-comedy. Yeah. Uh, patience was a great episode because it was like... How can we make an episode funny once? <laughs> I don't know why, but I've seen Patience like five it's times. All, it's fun to show it to other people. But if you were sitting through and going through DVDs, I usually stop at that 10-minute mark. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, yeah. I get it. It is funny. 
but it's also 10 minutes of just someone rewinding. Yeah, I, I feel like it's also, it's, it's, even though it was on MTV too, it's also a like adult swim st- style thing where they're counting on just confusing a stoned person late at night into watching the whole thing. And then when it's over, realizing that they've been punk. Yeah. Because I think if you have all your facilities about you, you're like, this show's trying to piss me off. But if you're stoned, you're like, nah, I just don't. I just don't get it, man. I better try harder. Yeah. Because of the fumes, we have a time limit uh, internally on this show. That didn't sound right. I just meant, like, between the two of us, we've had a discussion about when we I like we to think quit. every episode has a time limit. <laughs> internally. It's internally. Very, very Cronenberg. Um <laughs> Mm-hmm. We've all had uh, clocks inserted into our bellies. Uh, mm-hmm. No, so so at this point, we have nine minutes to talk about Halloween movies. Yeah, let's hit it. So my Spooktober uh, is slowed down a little bit since last time. You've watched 11 um, new movies since then. Yeah, but I had watched... Just shut up and do your movies. Yeah. <laughs> I watched uh, Frankenstein for the first time, and I didn't realize that it was a first-time watch until I was about 15 minutes into it and i realized i was like i don't recognize any of this that is a movie that i have absorbed through culture through the various parodies and remakes and like there's a kid's movie that where essentially a kid is dr frankenstein and then he has a buddy frankenstein like i i essentially absorbed the movie through culture uh like people talk about with star wars it's like even if you haven't seen empire strikes back you've kind of seen empire strikes back um Similar to that, I, 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 but yeah, it really, really worked on me. I've also watched Invisible Man this month. I'm watch, planning on watching Bride of Frankenstein and uh, a couple other Universal horror movies. And the the seventy minutes is so amazing because they just get to the meat immediately. That shocked me in Frankenstein that they're robbing the grave in the opening scene. Did you did you watch Bride of Frankenstein yet? Are you getting to that? No. Okay. No, I just got the disc. Yeah, Fra- Frankenstein, so Frankenstein's nice. great, but holy cow, is Bride of Frankenstein even better? So I'm, well, I'm excited. I gave Frankenstein a five star, so I probably would give Bride of Frankenstein six stars. I yeah. Don't know. Um, yeah. Future future generations will see that on Letterboxd. <laughs> um, I'm not going to go through all of them. Death Dream was good, but not notable. Splinter had really great monsters, but nothing else. The fucking filmmakers, the editor and the, the photographer really screwed over their SFX team in Splinter. I watched Vault of Horror, which is the sequel to Tales from the Crypt, which is just as good as the original. Uh, amazing stuff. I really, really love both Tales from the Crypt anthology movies. We'll talk about those more later this month. Uh, same with Tales of Halloween. We'll talk about that later this month. I wasn't as much of a fan of Tales of Halloween uh, as Vault of Horror, Tales from the Crypt, though there were a couple segments that I loved in it. I watched Tourist Trap, which I talked about last week, which I... Uh, Hold on, let's, I, go to, I was... let's go to the scoreboard for that one for your reaction. <laughs> <laughs> Door strap was I think that and the last broadcast are my two big duds this month. The list is heavily catered off of recommendations. So the list has a lot of movies that people I trust have recommended to me. And Tourist Trap was something I sought out on my own. And what lesson did you learn about trusting people? The movie taught me both to not trust people in a metatextual sense and in a literal sense. Yeah. Good. That's what um, movies are supposed to teach you. <laughs> teach you to just hide away and become a hermit and then eventually become your own horror movie monster. Um, you can dream. A boy can dream. Tourist Trap sucks on so many levels. It's it's a movie that would work were the special effects powerhouse. It kind of wants to be, but the special effects just 
do not work. There's nothing really notable about it. And moving on to that, I've honestly, the best movie I've watched in the past week is The Conjuring 2. I did not expect that because Insidious 2 sucks a lot. Um, I didn't hear great things about Sinister 2. Conjuring 2 fucking blew me away. I love both Conjuring movies. I think they're both five-star movies and their their use of sort of classical swooping camera movements are really beautiful and it's a nice counterpoint to how many movies are shot kind of cheaply and on digital and and such today. It looks like it's shot on film at least and it it uses sort of classical filmmaking techniques and it's really, it's a really refreshing series. I love both Conjuring movies quite a bit. Uh, Great. Yeah, I've only seen the first one and I uh, dislike it quite a bit so that's definitely a future podcast contender uh for us to fight about. yeah so i can't believe you don't like it you don't even think it's just okay no i i, I actively disliked it that's really fucking weird to me I, I was surprised by that reaction as well could always change on a rewatch but uh yeah it just really i don't know it the whole thing I, I don't i don't pop out of the tray and actively murder your family uh yeah this i'm on i'm on my second family <laughs> The first family, so this movie came out in 2013. Uh, my daughter's two. Yeah, so anyone that wants to fact check that, they're not going to get caught up on anything. This <laughs> um, family was, in fact, murdered by a DVD DVD player. And uh, as a white man, yeah. you got away with that in court right away. Uh, well, it was the DVD player, which is why I only watch Blu-rays. Um, now. Yeah, it's true. Now. that <laughs> I've learned my lesson. Um, all right. I'll go through mine really quick. I only watched six last week. I'm up to 19 on the 19th, so I am right on track. Um, Good for you. That was the most patronizing way you could say that. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Especially because you've had so many like, well, good for you. You're on pace. No. It's not patronizing. It's just my voice. Yeah, well, your voice. We've been recording for six months. You're very, pa- just... you're very patronizing. Um, <laughs> I'm a nice person. <laughs> there's been no evidence of that on the show. Um, <laughs> kidding. You're a lovely person, Peter. You're, you're. Thanks, Aaron. I, you're, besides coworkers and my wife, you are the person I talk to the most. I like Probably to think that I'm more. your co- coworker wife. Yeah, I have one of those. <laughs> uh, I have, I have a work wife. Everybody uh, does. Yeah. It's amazing how quick I've only, in 60s. I've only I've only worked there three months, and within a month, someone was, you know, asking me why I drank five hour energies, and it's like there's there's my work wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, I don't have anybody that harangues me like that at work yet. No, she. I mean, she was like, "I'm going to be your work wife." It, like watch it's it's very you. yeah it's it's very yeah that's that's what it is. She says she wants to watch out for me. Mm, I don't trust that. Okay, yeah, she's <laughs> probably she's probably going to kill this family. Um, <laughs> This is all fine to say because as much as I've asked them to, my coworkers do not listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, so <laughs> thank God, or my wife. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I watched six. I watched uh, Island of Lost Souls from 1932, pre-code silent horror with uh, Charles Lawton. Uh, it's really, really good. I forget who said this. It was in one of the letterbox reviews I read after watching the movie, and they basically said that. Black and white movies, like, they make you feel safe because you're so used to the, uh, the, the code that was in place that, you know, that, that stopped a certain level of violence or shocking surprises or even people that you like on screen being killed for the most part. So when you see a pre-code, uh, movie, it may not be as vicious as a movie nowadays can be, but you kind of get shocked still because that sense of safety that you're so used to watching those movies doesn't exist. And that was a really good example of this. It's it's excellent. And it's a very short movie. Um, it's actually one of the few movies I would ever say this about that, I, that honestly, like, the only way I dock it is I wish it would have been a little longer. 
Interesting. I uh, I rarely feel that about movies, so that's a really good sign. The classic sort of horror staples, particularly like universal horror movies, uh, were always kind of lost on me. And in the past year or two, I don't know what's happened. Uh, it's clicked with me. Like, I didn't like the thing when I watched it last time, but when we watched it for the show this month, I loved it. And, excuse me, the thing for the uh, from another world, um, the original. And these sort of... Uh, Old school horror exercises, I didn't like them because I just didn't, I, I didn't attach myself to any characters. It just, they just felt inhuman to me in a way that I couldn't relate to. And there's something happened recently. All of a sudden, I can like hear the dialogue better or something. Like I can hear through the static or I can hear the dialogue as a human being saying it. And it just all of a sudden clicked. Maybe I was watching Fritz, Fritz Lang's M. Yeah, I mean, there's not much dialogue in that, but maybe it clicked. Yeah, the well, the the final. You're like, okay, final, I like, it, it clicks if they don't talk too much. I don't know. Well, well, the final the final uh, monologue in Fritz Lang's um just shattered me, and a lot of the like sort of banter between the the, the thieves, the crooks, mm-hmm. had a similar effect on me, where I was just like, all of a sudden, these movies made sense to me. So it's it's kind of fun that this is a whole new area of film that's been opened up for me. So I'm excited to watch that. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, yeah, it's like 68 minutes or something like that. Anyway, uh, f- really I have five more. Yeah, it is really short. I'm going to try to get through as quick as possible. All right, so the other five I saw is Nightmares, which is an anthology movie um, from that not doesn't really get talked about. You can't rent it online. I ended up buying the Blu-ray from uh, Scream Factory. It It is a great example of a movie that if I would have watched it when it came out in 1985, I think, might have been 1983, I, when there was a ton of these anthology horror movies that were so much better, I would have thought, this is a piece of shit. As it <laughs> stands, because they're so rare, I really liked it because the stuff was so weird and so 80s and so off the wall. Uh, there's like one with like a giant rat that ha- that haunts the house and it's like the worst like forced perspective that makes the rat giant. There's one where Emilio mm. Estevez gets sucked into a video game. Um, I've seen pictures of that. I thought that was Maximum Overdrive, but it, it wasn't apparently. Yeah. So it, it's got one where uh, Lance Hendrickson is uh, chased by uh, a, a demon semi uh, that's the devil. Um, that sounds amazing. Yeah, so it's like a lot of stuff that like it's not great, but when there's so few of these kind of new when there's so few like 80s type creep show anthology horror movies, it was great to find one that kind of met that requirements even if uh it didn't really have any like amazingly standout segments, everything was just kind of okay, but the the sums of those parts was uh Really, very much worth your time if that's what you like. Um, I also watched the stuff, which was great. I every single one of uh, Larry Cohen's movies I've seen is just fantastic. I love them all. Yeah, I watched the stuff, and then unrelated, I watched Chud in the same day, and that's one of my favorite like horror days I've ever had in my life. Where just a bunch of buddies, we we actually made popcorn and watched the stuff and Chud, and it was an amazing afternoon. The stuff is so fun. Yeah, uh, my wife caught like the last half of that. And she's like, "How is that a horror movie?" I guess it kind of is, uh, but it's, you know, like like a lot of his movies, it has like a it has a wink in its eye of like what it's covering while having like an allegorical point. And that's uh, I, that's why I, I haven't seen a ton of his movies. I've seen It's Alive. I've seen God Told Me To and another one that I'm forgetting. Uh, and I love I love God, God Told Me To. Oh, yeah. We're, we 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 almost did that uh, in September and I guarantee we'll do it at some point in the future. Um 
I watched. I like how it's called God Told Me To. Like, the kill is a spoiler. Like, God told me to dance. Like, what? It's a spoiler (laughs) until the first two minutes where someone's on the roof with a sniper rifle. Yeah. I love that movie. God told me to climb. (laughs) Am I I mistaken, or does Andy Kaufman get sniped in that movie? Uh, You are not mistaken. Andy Kaufman gets sniped in that movie. Yes. Uh, (laughs) That's how he died in real life. (laughs) That's his greatest trick. Is that he wasn't? <laughs> it wasn't the rare form of cancer. It was a snipe. Um, was Bob? Was Bob Zamuda also killed by the sniper? Or oh, he will be <laughs> someday. The sniper never lets it's, him it's, get away. It's it's a bullet that just it's it's slowly traveling around the earth, um, <laughs> based on my understanding of science. Uh, that's that's what happened. Um, I also watched WNUF Halloween special, which we talked about last week, uh, which I which I loved. It's kind of fake nineteen eighty seven local news. Uh, that's short broadcast. as fuck too. Yeah, it's like 90 minutes. Um, I really oh, liked it, it. Yeah, I really liked it. My my one complaint was uh, the commercials, um, which were very cute and charming at the beginning. I almost got to the point where it was a normal movie that I would have recorded off TV where I was started thinking, uh, I'm just going to fast forward these. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't, but like that's where I was by the end of the movie. Um, I, I, I feel the exact same way, dude. I, uh, <laughs> I watched... I, Thought at first the commercials were super charming, and by the end they bored me like regular commercials. Yep, and I couldn't decide if that was a good or a bad thing. I mean, it, it works really well for authenticity, which is what they were going for, uh, and they yeah. nailed that. Like, there were so many of those commercials that I thought must have been real commercials, or at least used footage from real commercials, because the whole thing was like, well, how did they get all these kids to cut their hair like this? How did they? Where did they get all these clothes? Like, this budget of this movie was fourteen hundred dollars. <laughs> You know, yeah. you're, you're watching it. You're like, okay, but apparently they were all shot for the movie. So just that, it's it's definitely um, something you watch and are impressed by. But there is a point where it's stop. Please stop cutting away. Yeah, <laughs> it reminded me um, not in terms of plot, but in terms of uh, the whole structure of it is almost exactly like Ghost Watch. Ghost Watch doesn't have face, fake commercials, but it was put on TV as like a real. Uh, event that was happening and i watched ghost watch i think very early in the in this month um and uh yeah i, I thought wnuf and ghost watch would be really good companion pieces to one another uh, they pull off the is this real or not thing really really admirably yeah i probably won't uh probably won't get to ghost watch this sh- this year but i'll uh i'll do what you said and hope that there's a blu-ray release it, there's no good way to watch it in region one. Like, I guess if you have a multi-region player, you can buy an R2 version. But like, I come on, man. No one has that. Not, a, a region two D, so a region two DVD player killed my first family. <laughs> uh, so I have two left. I have Neon Maniacs, which uh, a lot of fun for an '80s movie. Um, there, there was definitely a lot of maniacs, um, but there was no fucking neon in the whole movie. Which was insane. It was the it was like 1985. You could accidentally stumble around and get 30 percent of your movie as neon, and there was no neon in the whole movie. It's sort of a trauma situation where you're like amazing title, great poster, and then uh, you see the movie and you're like, I was outright lied to. Yeah, I mean, uh, so yeah, 50 percent of the movie's title was accurate, and they really whiffed on that other 50 percent. Well, when you hear Neon Maniacs, you think of like something sort of like the mo- the aliens from Attack the Block, glowing creeps that come after you, or like 
uh, uh, something like the, the, the hobos from Street Trash. Or Wham! has a bad day. So the last one I watched, which was actually a compromise that um, I had some family staying with me last night, and they really wanted to watch a documentary, and I was trying to keep pace with my horror uh, film watching. So our compromise was we watched the PBS documentary uh, Jonestown, The Life and Death of the People's Temple is the subtitle, which is going to be, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to, like, diminish its real life uh, impact. Uh, but, you know, last year I tried to watch a horror documentary or like a a documentary that was meant to horrify me, I guess would be the the better way to put it. So it doesn't sound like I am trying to uh, minimize the incident by lumping it up with all these fun horror movies. But I like having, um, you know, there there is a lot of fake horror and uh, fake scares that we watch, and we kind of talked about it last week uh, or two weeks ago about how much that um, how much how much that works for us uh, specifically. But I think it's nice to be reminded of like what real horror is. So last year I did try to watch a documentary as well, and I will say, which was the uh, the one about the oh, fuck what are the cannibals uh, from the 1850s that PBS did Donner, Donner Party. Party, yeah. Which also is great if you haven't seen it, and that is an absolutely horrifying movie of, like, really learning how the conditions break down to, like, lead people to eat each other. It's horrifying, and it's interesting, and it really, you know, helps illuminate this this story that you've heard, but you may not know all the details, and that is absolutely what happened with Jonestown. I knew surprisingly little about uh, the story besides, you know, Jim Jones and 900 people and Kool-Aid. And here's what's fucking amazing, and this is what we can end on. So when The Sacrament came out, Ty West movie The Sacrament, there were people that were saying, wow, this is close to Jonestown and it's disrespectful. And not knowing the details, I was like, okay, yeah, it's about a cult and it's in the jungle and people take the Kool-Aid. But but it can't be that. Like, I assume that it was just those core pillars that Ty West was – uh, u- utilizing in his movie, and then the rest was all just kind of accoutrements that he added to tell the story. Holy shit, Peter, that is not the case at all. Uh, maybe you knew that, but like the injecting the Kool-Aid into babies, the people with the guns, the fact that I didn't fucking know that a U.S. congressman died there and that the journalists were running to the helicopter while they gunned down like 10 of them. Like that – I Ed- knew I- – if anything, the the actual Jonestown is worse because more people died. I didn't know that than are featured in the movie. But holy shit, it wasn't – it was not just like this is a bullet point. They, they took the bullet points and they made this fictional movie. They like dramatized it almost – like all the stuff that you – if you've only seen the sacrament and don't know the story of Jonestown – the stuff that you assume is made up is absolutely not made up. I remember watching – Did you, I, I did you know that? Story- I roughly knew the story of Jonestown, uh, but I've never seen that documentary, and I don't know it step by step because I've never read uh, any books on the subject. I've only read like you know Wikipedia-sized um, retellings of the tale, and I knew that yeah, I knew like a congressperson and journalists were killed, and like it was hundreds upon hundreds of people, and um, yeah, I knew a lot of the details b- beforehand. I, it, it begs the question of like. When is exploitation too far and when is – and I feel like the sacrament gets a lot of its forgiveness from the fact that, well, A, it's not specifically about Jonestown uh, and B, Jonestown was, what, 20 years ago? 
1978. So oh, 78. Yeah. So All right. So Jonestown was what 40 years almost, ago? Almost 40 years ago. Yeah, I so don't. It's fine. It's fine. It, like it's fine from that perspective. Yeah. But I do get that people are like very sensitive to that, and I think it's a good question to ask. Like. Is this overly exploitive? Jonestown made us so weary of new religious movements and cults that... Not weary enough. Yeah, not weary enough. It sort of taught us a lesson, so now we're all, like, very cringy about it. But yeah, I think that the exploitational aspects of it, I can see why it bothers someone. It doesn't personally bother me because, yes, we're almost 40 years removed from the events. Um, Still doesn't personally bother me and we can talk about ty west and the sacrament probably someday because i actually i like the movie but i will say this i didn't think that those people have a leg just had a leg to stand on so the difference i guess now from my perspective is if you are bothered that someone took an event and dramatized it or did it for a horror movie specifically which i think is where a lot of people's problem was with it at least i can say okay i could see why you're you're saying that this uh, this this takes so much from a real life incident. I may not agree that that makes it verboten to make the movie, but I think that if you do hold that belief that they shouldn't have made a, a genre exploitation horror movie out of it, that at least I can see that you're not being ridiculous in your parallels. Like, yeah, it's called it's Kool Aid, guys. Like, nope, it's 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 pretty close. I think it's way more offensive when somebody exploits like the AIDS crisis that's still going on or somebody exploits like, I mean, like even nine 11 stuff is overdone in movies. I think that's, I think giving Ty West shit for, for exploiting a tragedy from 40 years ago is a lot less offensive than like the dark Knight and transformers. Like every star, both star Trek movies, I believe the the reboots use nine 11 imagery, like crazy all over the place. And I think that that's such a recent trend. Just to be clear. So the listeners know you think the only good nine 11 movie is loose change, right? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Um, Um, yeah, I would, I would say, I would say it's the, it's the old axiom, which is, uh, making a bad movie is offensive or a me- mediocre movie is offensive. And if you make a good movie, then who cares? And yeah. I-, I would say The Sacrament is a good movie, so it passes that test. I would say something like United 93 is a very good movie and it passes that test. And something like World Trade Center is terrible. And regardless of how respectful it's being, it's it's not it, – it, it may not be exploiting the, the tragedy, but it – but it is wasting everyone's time and how they think about it or something like Pearl Harbor or, yeah. you know, make a good movie and we're fine. You know, make a shitty movie that's offensive to that's whatever true. event you're dramatizing. So it's easier to swallow that pill. It's sort of like when Bill Burr has a bit that offends you and goes against your whole being, but you still laugh. Yeah. You're like, that was an expertly crafted bit and he knows he's going to piss me off with this bit. Yep. But it's so fucking funny, I can't help it. Yeah, it's the same thing. In comedy, um, everything gets forgiven if, if the joke that you craft is funny. And in mo- Take that risk. Yeah, and in movie making, anything that you want to you wanna create or show on screen is not offensive as long as it's done well and hopefully with the with a with a modicum of respect that you believe that that it deserves. I mean, Four Lions is a one of the funniest comedies of the last ten years, and that that could easily be seen as that they're mocking uh, uh, fundamentalist Islam or you know terrorists or jihadists or whatever you want to call them. You can take something that is tough to talk about and make a hilarious comedy about it 
because it's done. I think that exploitational movies have a sort of leg to stand on. They can delve into controversial subjects and sort of uh, have its cake and eat it too, where it can have fun with these controversial subjects, but still say something. I mean, that's what Roger Corman did. Roger Corman's like, all right, I, I have this monster suit, I have this location, and I, I can do something kind of subversive here. And, you know, people that only pick up 10% of that subversion are just like, oh, he's making fun of Vietnam. He's making fun of Viet- Vietnam veterans. And if you pay attention to the whole picture, you'll see something much deeper and richer. And I think the sacrament still ha- has value uh, because it's obviously it's a really well-made movie. But <laughs> the sacrament also has value because it, it, it's bringing to light like issues that we still deal with. Today. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So. uh I'd like to continue this thread, but I know we need to get to the movie, which I know we're both very excited to talk about because it is fucking David Cronenberg's The Fly. Peter, do you want to start talking about David Cronenberg's The Fly? Yeah, let's do it, dude. Five second recap. Uh, everything falls apart. Then I have to try and put it back together. Is that just the dogs? My five second recap is the dogs I view song from the nineties. <laughs> um, do you want me to leave that in, or do you want me to sub in? You can maybe maybe start with me singing it, but cut away because I can't sing. Um, and people <laughs> probably won't remember a one hit wonder from nineteen ninety six. But, uh, yeah, that's what I was going for. It was beautiful. Thank you. So That was the most sincere re- thank you I've ever heard. Thank you. You're well- you are <laughs> welcome. You are welcome. Yeah. Um, so, 90-second recap of David Cronenberg's The Fly is that a scientist meets a journalist at a party. The, they're sort of flirting with one another, and the journalist goes back to the scientist's uh, warehouse pad and he starts telling her about a device that he's been working on, this teleporter uh, that takes you him from one end of the room to the other. And uh, he starts experimenting with it. He starts experimenting with her. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't get that with the straight face. <laughs> and uh, he eventually, due to uh, an evening where they have a sort of uh, disagreement, uh he eventually gets drunk and puts himself in the teleporter. He doesn't realize that he put himself in the teleporter also with a fly. So they uh, sort of been there. Blend, yeah, sort of blended DNA. He picks up some fly DNA that starts expressing itself in sort of positive ways at first, and then it, they become negative. Uh, eventually, he's just falling apart and becoming this freak and sort of losing his sense of sovereignty and independence. And uh, he tries to, uh, by the end of the movie, he decides that he um, needs to use Gina Davis, the journalist, and his girlfriend as a means of bring, giving him back some of his humanity. If they both go in the teleporter, maybe he can dilute the fly DNA um, by combining with her. And uh, during that process, uh, her uh, other ex-boyfriend uh, interrupts the process and he gets blended with a uh, an actual teleporter machine and becomes this weird metal 
Tetsuo, the Iron Man type freak thing, and she has to mercy kill him. Did I miss anything? Oh yeah, and she's pregnant with his uh, possibly awful fly baby. Yep. No, I think I think that was good. Which I think that's the plot of the second one is what Brandon says, right? Like, what if she had the fly baby? Spoilers for Fly 2. I believe it's been a while since I've seen it, but in the opening of that movie, uh, she, Gina Davis's character, uh, Ronnie, dies in childbirth, giving birth to oh, Eric Stoltz. That's awful. Yeah, so it's great to not... And to give birth to an Eric Stoltz. Yeah, both equally awful. I mean, honestly, if you're going to do one, you got to do the other because you cannot live with yourself if you gave birth to Eric Stoltz. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Again, random, random shade for no reason (laughs) against Eric Stoltz. I'm sure we'll have a guest who's like, I fucking love Eric Stoltz. Yeah. In what? In what? In Pulp Fiction? Yeah, in, in movies where he's not the main... What Eric Stoltz movie do you love? Okay, that's fine <laughs> if you like Eric Stoltz and stuff, but you don't like Eric Stoltz in any Eric Stoltz movie. Killing Zoe? No one's, is that a movie no anybody likes? No one's seen it. Every That is a movie that everyone thought about renting and never rented it. <laughs> oh, God, that looks kind of... Anyway. That's Roger um, Avery. He did do Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I'm going to get RoboCop 2. <laughs> um, but the... Uh, oh yeah, they're like they're like they're like they're like oh yeah. I actually prefer the original version of Back to the Future with Eric Stoltz. Yep, everyone's like, no, literally. I don't think Eric Stoltz thinks that. <laughs> I think Eric Stoltz is like, you know, it sucks, but Michael J. Fox has got it. No, I was fine being in Rules of Attraction. Was he in Rules of Attraction? I feel like sure. he was. I think he was too old for it, but whatever. I don't think he played James Vanderbeek's college roommate. I think it was like an adult that was selling drugs to people. Is somebody that looks like Eric Stoltz allowed to be on any college campus unless he's selling drugs? I don't know. I never saw Killing Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the plot there? I think it's about robbing banks and I presume killing someone named Zoe. Yep. He played Zed in Killy Zoe. Mm. He he was in, he played Mr. Lawson in the Rules of Attraction. You burnt. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we don't do we don't do much looking up stuff on our phone to correct the hosts. But uh, new segment, gotcha. <laughs> new segment, got, gotcha journalism. Gotcha journalism. Um, so uh, yeah, let's like Sarah talk. Palin right now. Yeah, palin around with Palin. Who knew that would was going to become the GOP's official position? <laughs> Eight years later. Um. The, so let's yeah let's talk about our experience with this movie. Um, I gotta tell you, I know I said two episodes ago when we did uh, Carpenter's The Thing that that was my most watched movie we've ever done on this podcast. Uh, this definitely beats it. Oh really? I mean, like, did you watch it seventeen times this week? Or I don't mean just before the show. I mean in my lifetime. <laughs> I just dis- I discovered it earlier uh, that I did at Carpenter's uh, the thing I think was like either early college or very late high school and I feel like this was like sophomore year in high school and it was definitely my first Cronenberg movie and I wanted to show it to everybody and then got into Naked Lunch and Videodrome and basically rented everything I could like David Cronenberg even beat out David Lynch for me because I don't I did not see a David Lynch movie until uh, Blue Velvet in uh, college and I saw Mulholland Drive in theater so yeah Cronenberg was definitely one of my first like it felt like to me from my friends taste in movies like idiosyncratic taste that made these weird crazy movies and then this was uh, this was his most mainstream. Uh, it's still my second favorite of his movies, uh, but it's just it's just a perfect 
90 minutes. Like there's watching it again for this podcast, probably the who knows 50th time. Uh, there's just, there's nothing I would take out here. There's some stuff that's uncomfortable, but it, you know, it serves the character and where the character's going. Like even his, um, terribleness to Ronnie, I guess actually I'm going to take that back. So if, if we're going to kind of do the same thing we did with the thing, which is talk, uh, talk our negatives first. Why don't we do that? Uh, first, I'll let you talk about your experience with the fly and your general thoughts on it, and then we'll we'll go to negatives, and then probably just talk a bunch of sugar for the rest of the podcast. Yeah, that's a good, great idea. I didn't come to this movie until later, and by later, I mean I'm 25, so I watched it in college. At the time, I just more admired it for its special effects. But in recent years, I've come to admire it as a really human movie. And the Cronenberg found a beating heart in the original story that gets lost under how impressive the special effects are. I think that people remember the Inside Out baboon and that deleted scene with the the whatever the monkey rat dog or whatever it's supposed to be. Where the I haven't watched the deleted scene in like six years, but it's the, he combines two animals in the in the teleporter and they come out the other end and he has to beat it to death. Um, I think people remember scenes like that from the movie and him having all these body parts falling off more so than like how delicate he is with these two very strange characters, um, Ronnie and Seth. And I, uh, it's a movie that I loved when I first watched it. And as the years have gone on, I have, I love it for totally different reasons now. Um, I think that the, I think that it's, it's pretty close to being a perfect movie. I think you're right. I think that the, it has a sort of leanness and the, and the, uh, the rough edges of the movie are there to make you ask questions about what the characters are. Yeah. Um, like the fact that she goes back to her asshole ex-boyfriend and he ends up helping save the day. Like that's not there because Cronenberg couldn't hire another actor like, Cronenberg could have just had another character seduce her, and then he comes in for the finale. Cronenberg was, is doing something very smart there. So, yeah, as the years have gone on, that, those aspects of the story have, have grabbed me just as much as the gut-wrenchingly gross special effects. Like, disgusting fucking special effects. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of a mainstream movie that has this gross of special effects. I can't – nothing else is coming to mind. I mean, this is – this is a movie for me – I talked about this with The Thing, with that feeling that the second I watched it, I knew I was watching something iconic that I was going to watch over and over again. I'm a little surprised that you didn't have that same reaction. Um, but it seems like from everything we've talked about – it feels like something that would have been immediately up your alley. Uh, but I'm glad you've come around to it as more than just a gross-out special effect bonanza and, and see it as, yeah, I think it's a very human story. It's a very tragic story of someone, like, losing his humanity completely and then gaining it back in fits and spurts. So I want to talk about the two things I don't like about this movie. Uh, maybe they align with, with you. Uh, and again, I am calling this a perfect movie. So uh, the the things that don't work for me are in no way, you know, we talk about movies as a final product and then we drill down. It's still a perfect movie. It's still on my top 100 list. Just like the thing, it's okay to talk about the stuff that doesn't work. You are not condemning the movie as a whole. It's how adults talk. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I, Jeannie Davis is great in this. She does a great job of portraying 
just just kind of a loss that she can't doesn't know what to do with that here's this person that she loved who is crumbling away from her like and and i think there's a lot of parallels that you can make to like watching someone die of cancer or watching someone die of any disease where it's you you you're sad and you're angry and you want to be able to act and you just can't there's nothing you can do uh, you can try to be supportive, and sometimes that gets really hard. Uh, usually, not so hard that like you're, um, <laughs> you're, you're the person that's dying of cancer is bringing back girls from the bar and having sex in your house, but still difficult. So I think there's a lot of that. Gina Davis portrays that great. Uh, sometimes, though, I feel like they make her too much of the uh, of the kind of the I don't know what the right word is. She just she just sometimes reacts to too much with, oh, no, oh, no. I, I think they kind of turn her more, not damsel in distress. They never do that, which is great, but more just I can't handle everything. And it takes away a little bit of her agency near the end. Uh, I, I'm, I'm open to debates that that's just how she's so good at playing overwhelmed that that's what's going on. But it does feel a little bit like she becomes not some, – some of the strength of her character gets sapped. And while some of that works as a reaction to the disease that's tearing apart the person that she loves, some of it goes on too long and too far. One, But one might say that it's actually her strength that leads her to decide to leave him. Yeah. Because she's realizing that it's becoming a abusive relationship in physical and uh, emotional ways. He's sleeping with women out of vengeance because she's just like, you just can't keep up. And he's grabbing her wrist and trying for, trying to force her into the, the machine and yelling at her. Like, those are all abusive things. And it, and it actually takes strength, I think, for her to leave him. So that's what I saw this time where the first time I was like, I was like, why doesn't she just stick around until the problem is done? Like, why isn't she, why isn't she helping with experiments and shit? She writes for a, ma- a science magazine. She clearly understands, yep. you know, some enough science to write articles. Particle magazine, top selling yeah. magazine of the eighties. <laughs> that was a weird like outlier in this movie. It's like particle. She writes for a particle magazine. What does that mean? Like, does, she, does that mean she's like working for a dead end paper? Like, or does that mean that she's like an, actually just a former scientist and this <laughs> is just like one of her ways she makes money? Like, what does that mean that she works for a science periodical? Yeah, I know print is dead, but there w- it was never. Never alive to the point that a magazine called Particle would have survived in the marketplace. <laughs> Has anyone ever opened their mail and like, ooh, Particle Physics? Oh, no. <laughs> like that's why they have to lump big areas of science into magazines because no one's like, oh, gotta get the the Particle stuff. We have subscribers of millions. Wanting to yeah. learn about atoms and neutrons and guys, it's gonna be huge. That's why Wired still exists, is because they're like they'll they'll have this article on the most boring fucking thing in the world, but they sent out like some of the best photographers and they have some of the best graphic designers on the planet working for them, so they're just like, Yeah, we'll make we'll make the picture look sexy, but like once you <laughs> get down to the meat, you're like they're trying to get me to learn. This is like zoo books all over again. Or Ranger now Rick. They're talk- um, now they're talking about how like sugar and yeast foculates within the wheat cycle of this particular plant and what that means for Monsanto next year. Like this is fucking boring. And then kids throw it in the pile of the other magazines their parents have and uh, <laughs> that they didn't read. And now that's how 2016 happens. Uh 
just people just watch movies and there's no more print. Sad. Uh, anyway, not, not, that's not how it happened. That's a incorrect timeline. I want to make sure that, that I clarify. I, I didn't think that I, I think I specifically underlined that I never thought Gina Davis character is not uh, does not have uh, strength of character like she you're right. She she leaves when she decides it's time to leave. She is there of her own volition to help someone. She is she is never the abused spouse like their relationship romantically ends and she is there as a friend who cares about someone uh despite his doing everything maybe not in his power but his actions doing everything to push her away so uh when i said it takes away a little agency i want to be very clear like at no point Gina davis is her own person throughout this entire movie and she's great in it what i, what I was trying to convey is that she does get a little bit into the I don't know what the right word is, because uh, agency clearly was not it. Um, like, oh, Seth, oh, Seth, oh, another, like, I don't, you know, I, I hope that I'm not trying to be, like, offensive in my impression, but, like, she's just overly, I don't know, because she's so good early on in she sees the stuff and she's grossed out like a human being. She's a strong character and she can handle it. And then near the end. They take away a little bit of that. I think there's a little bit too much where, and I, that's why I said that I can buy that the character just gets overwhelmed at a certain point. Who wouldn't? But I would have liked if she kind of had that steely resolve that she has for like 80% of the movie um, until she gets whisked away from the hospital by by Seth. So my only other problem with this movie is that, so I know, Stasis is an asshole, and it looks even more like an asshole through the lens of 2016 than 1986, because it's just someone who's, like, threatening her, breaking into her house, and, like, being super rapey and stalkery, and this is my property. It was gross in 1986, I'm sure. I was three at the time. But it's, regardless if it, if it was more charmingly and just, he's an evil 80s movie bad guy it's fucking disgusting through the lens of right now so his quasi redemption arc feels a little unearned to me that he kind of comes in and saves the day I, I get it you're supposed to reverse it's supposed to reverse a little bit of expectations here's this guy who's been a monster the whole movie and then at the end he he he's still there to save the day and he you know he still cares about this person and is still trying to uh, save her from this monster but it it rings just so fucking like there was a way to have him go and confront uh Seth without all of a sudden being the good guy because him being the good guy is not a turn that I'm accepting as an audience member. You dug his coffin too deep. I didn't really see it as him being the good guy. Like, primarily what he does in the end is he fucks... I guess he, he helps save the day, but it's out of selfish, jealous reasons, which is the same reason that Rundlefly dissolves his arm and his leg. It's, it's, it's because he's a sexual and a power rival. Um, he's not just Brunelfi is not just defending himself. The reason he maims Stathis and before he goes for the face uh, and gets interrupted is because he's trying to hurt Stathis. And I see it as two kind of two sides of the coin. Like these are two awful men that are trying to possess her. Note that we never see her 
in loving affection with Stathis at any point in the movie. She's always in post-breakup, like, I don't want to be fucking you, but I still am mode. I think that the movie does that on purpose because the movie doesn't necessarily want you to forgive Stathis. It just wants you to see that Stathis is fighting for Gina Davis. So he's kind of on the right side of this. See, and, and, and he just lands on the right side. That doesn't mean that he's a hero. See, and it's, it's so funny that we had the reverse interpretation of this because I agree that I think that the movie would be better if that was the case. I just don't agree that that reading is in the movie where when we were talking about possession, if you remember, you thought that Sam Neill's character was trying to be heroic at the end. And I basically argued what you're arguing now, that the movie was not showing him to be heroic, but just being jealous and a monster again when he tries to selflessly save her. So it's I just think it's interesting. I think we both always agree what the better, you know, it's hard to take a character that's been that gross towards our hero and and give him a mild redemptive arc at the end. And maybe that is the intention, and I'm missing it, but even on this rewatch, I was actually thinking, I wish what you're saying is true, I just don't see it in the movie. Well, what's weird is now, looking back on the Possession episode, I completely agree with you in, in the sense that, like, I, I think that Possession never lets Sam Neill off the hook. That's a good callback. I think Possession wants you to see Sam Neill as an asshole by the end, but just a pathetic asshole who kind of got uh, manipulated. In this movie, I don't think you can see Stathis as being manipulated. Well, Bonnie doesn't ask him to go and fuck up the fly, right? He brings a, he brings out the shotgun because he's like, you know what? Because she's, been, she's been taken. Yeah, this is the last thing standing between me and my claim. He doesn't see her as like a woman to be respected. We see him as an editor and then we see him like, just in her apartment, in her shower, and sort of smirking at her like, haha, I, uh, I got in your apartment, and you're not even going to change the fucking locks. Like, you still want me. Like, we see him as that shithead for the whole movie. Yeah, but I, but I think... I don't think he, he gets I, a redempted arc at all. I think, like, I think he, he does get a mild one, but he, and here's why. I don't think in 19... Through the prism of 1986 when this movie was made, I don't think that his stuff is supposed to be as creepy as it looks now. I think he's supposed to be the heel, and... Like, this kind of, like, playful annoyance or, like, man, what an asshole. But what he's actually doing – and so so this kind of, like, asshole who does some annoying things is easier to give a redemptive arc than the possessing monster who, like, makes this woman feel unsafe and never gives her stuff that he looks like now through our prism. So the movie, I don't think, has that perspective that we have watching Stannis now. So I think they were more, more okay with giving him a mild um, redemptive arc where, hey, this kind of annoying guy turns into turns into maybe not a full-blown hero, but at least when push came to shove, he did the right thing. I think that his actions look way grosser now than the movie thought they were in 1986, and I think that's why that he does have a mild redemptive arc at the end. The only thing heroic that he does is shoot the 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 transporter machine. Like he comes back to save her, he gets the gun. I, I think in the text they keep showing her being depressed and thinking about 
uh, uh, Seth and thinking about, you know, I should have gone back. I have to do something. And uh, until eventually she can't take it anymore and she's going back. She isn't happy with Stathis. If there was even a moment of her and Stathis happy together or her and Stathis having like conciliatory sex, like if there was a moment like that in the movie, then I could see the movie that being an intention of the movie to turn us around on Stathis. Instead, I see it as that is a depressive slump in the movie where Brundlefly is getting worse, but he's starting to think that that's actually kind of an ironic contrast in the movie. Brundlefly is getting worse objectively, but in his mind, he's getting more powerful. He's getting over his self-loathing and his sadness over their breakup. And she's getting sadder and sadder because all she sees is someone that she loves turning into a, a monster. If that if that were the case, you know, if the movie wanted us to be a hero, it would show us her having like a sort of happy, normal life. But it's got a little kink in it. Well, because he was torn apart. And I think she's just miserable and depressed. There's these like muted shots of her sitting in her dark apartment. And like her and Stathis have shown like there's no happiness between. Yeah, them. I, I think I think you're misinterpreting me saying that he has a mild redemptive arc at the end for saying that I think the movie is like a hero and they found out that they're true loves. I think he does have a legitimate. I think the movie wants to give him a mild redemptive arc. That doesn't mean that they're happy together or that anyone's happy at the end of this movie. But I think the point of the movie, or at least the impression the movie gives, is that when push came to shove, this kind of, you know, annoying guy stood up and and did the right thing and protected the person that he cared about. And I, I let me ask you this. Do you honestly think that when this movie came out in 1986, that anyone making it thought that Stannis was a, like, devious sexual predator that he clearly is when viewed through the prism of today? Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure women, a lot of women saw him that way. I, I agree with you that people probably saw this and were like, this isn't a charming or an uncharming asshole. This is a, someone should call the police and have this man locked up. No, not to that degree, but I think that, I don't think anybody walked out of that movie and said, you know, Stathis is a hero. No, but I never said I thought he was a hero. I think he had a mild redemptive arc. I guess that points to my only real problem with the movie, and that's that the most powerful part of the original fly, which I should note, th- I, I took a, it took a little thing. Thirty-four minutes in the movie is when the Brundle Fly transformation happens. The pacing in this movie is fucking amazing. In, yeah. Exactly. It is just keeps ratcheting things up. Those first 34 minutes minutes are lightning. The original movie, it's an hour before it gets to Brundlefly. And he's only Brundlefly for like, I don't know, 20 minutes. They're showing the telepods in the first five minutes. They're like, this is the plot. Like he, Cronenberg trimmed all the fat off that story. Yes. And then took the 30 minutes of that movie or 45 minutes or an hour that's kind of about uh, someone turning into a fly. Cut out all the stuff that was like inconsequential to the plot and then expanded all of the most interesting parts like this i can see why even though i really like the 1958 version i can see why people were like this is the better one because it's really the perfect remake that that takes all of the good and removes all of the bad and then gives you more good I think that my only problem with the movie, I agree, uh, like, 90% of the way. I think my only uh, disagreement with the movie uh, sprouts from what you were just talking about. I think the movie doesn't have a big, powerful moment where 
like the original one does where where Brundlefly asks her to kill him while he's still human enough. Um, in this movie, it's 100% her decision. It's 100% uh, Gina Davis's decision to kill the, what the he, fly. What are you talking like, about? He puts the gun barrel on his head. It's a 10 second sort of thing. Like she, she's completely in control. In the original one, he's like, in the original one, he makes the plan. He's like, we're going to go there. You're going to stamp my head. I'm going to set this up for you. And then we're going to, and then you're just, get, all you have to do is hit this button. Like it's a, it's a whole thing. And this, he's just like, it, he needs to be so humbled before he can get before he's like okay fine kill me and i agree that it's a beautiful moment when he puts the he puts the barrel on his head i agree that's a beautiful moment but i think that that's one thing that the original might have is that in the in the new one it has staff is breaking the machine and then he gets humbled and i think that in the original he was just like he could see he had a moment that just turned him and a, a character shift moment where he's like oh fuck I need to be dead. Whereas in the remake, he's like, I can't live like this. Please end my suffering. In the original, he was like, he could see his humanity shifting away. And then that's when he decided consciously with the remainder of his humanity to die. In this one, he's like, well, I should be dead. This is where I've become, I've crossed the line. But see, I think that the remaining uh, humanity part of this movie isn't asking to die. It's when he tells her, get out of here. I'm going to hurt you. I agree that that's a great way for the movie to show the love, the complicated love relationship between these those two it also it delves deeper into the like the th- the one thing i'll say about the 1958 fly is there's never the fly doesn't hurt anyone there's not really which is fine it works really well for that movie but there's there's only a like idea of a threat that he may someday pose as the fly takes over and he wants everything to be ended before that actually happens here you see what happens when the fly takes over. You see what kind of threat he becomes. And the movie's catharsis of, like, his last bit of humanity instead of the, well, kill me before I do anything bad, uh, is, I've already done stuff bad. I don't want to do bad stuff to you. Get out. It shifts where the moment of conciliatory, all right, I realize I've become a monster. Let's end this together on our terms. It shifts where that moment is. Um, and what that moment means. But, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's, but, you know, having a moment where Stathis it forces him to fail and then that's why he, he gets humbled. That's the only, I, I'm just trying to think about your problem that you brought up earlier that you don't like the fact that Stathis gets a redemptive arc. Yeah. The one thing I think it did better in the original is that. And actually, there's a scene where Gina Davis comes and sits down on the couch and she's crying. And Stathis is like, what's wrong? And for a second, it had been so long since I've seen the movie. For a second, I was like, oh, is this movie going to pull a little bit of the the funky timing like the original one does? And she's going to say, I killed Seth. And then the movie's going to jump back. See, and I take the – so while I do think that he does – put the gun to his head and that's like I think that's actually works more of, of a twist because you think he's still coming and Gina Davis can't do it because he she still sees a bit of humanity left in him even if he had stopped uh, feeling that way sooner than she had and then the kind of twist is that this this thing wants out of its misery uh, and he puts the gun to his head so 
that's I don't I don't think that is analogous to the 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 1958's version of you need to kill me. The 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 proper analogy is the I'll hurt you if you stay uh, line. Um, so I think I think it works as a good twist. Um, I'm sure that you know it's hard to remember, but I'm sure the first time I saw the movie, I thought that he she he was coming back for more. Uh, I I know I didn't expect him to put the gun to his head so or what's left of his head so that, i think that works as like a last second twist it's a it's a heartbreaker the movie is ultimately about a fail of a, a doomed love right so that is that, it, the, is that it about moment a doomed in the movie, love i think so i think the scenes we see between ronnie and seth we see a sort of um loving respect for one another and we see what could be a relationship of equals that's not yeah a, yeah I'm, and, and you can see they have amazing chemistry well no yeah pun intended. Uh, yeah <laughs> uh yeah and unsurprising they were married at the time yeah they so they, it's, it's good that they had uh, good chemistry the two of them have really incredible chemistry and i think that the jeff goldblum gina davis coupling of the 80s is one of my favorite things that's ever happened in hollywood because <laughs> i love both of them so much and they're both just like weird lovable people that somehow came together and the fact that they uh split apart is uh kind of heartbreaking yeah let's try to get them back together <laughs> yeah let's see if it works yeah um it, w- it was also like i was bummed about will arnett and amy poehler breaking up this matters to me like once every five years but uh yeah i heard the rumors about rita wilson and tom hanks and i was like no no <laughs> don't those two uh real perman and danny devito and Megan Milani and um, Nick, Offerman. Nick Offerman are like the three that would probably like, I'm going to take a half day at work. <laughs> what if they all just got like a, a, a divorce pact? Uh, just, yeah, if they did a divorce Tuesday. pact and then switched, switched it all up, I'd be better about it because it's like, this is best for all of them. <laughs> um, Gina Davis. I, did you say you don't like Gina Davis? No, I love Gina Davis. Oh, I thought I thought you said that earlier. I think I, I was picking up some. Uh, I was reading between the lines. No, 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 no. I was. I, I, all I was saying was that she was great in this, and that I didn't like what they kind of did to her character at the very end of the movie. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I adore Gina Davis. I watched this and Beetlejuice this week. Yeah, and uh, it was kind of fun to get to revel in my Gina Davis crush for you know for about four yeah. hours. Um, yeah, I'll never, I'll never forgive Rennie Harlan. Oh, yeah. For a long kiss goodnight? No. Just in general? <laughs> yeah. yeah, fuck that guy. Um, <laughs> for Minehunters. You remember that, everyone? Big Minehunters I, I like Minehunters. Uh, I've never seen it. No, uh, Cutthroat Island. Like, kind of killed Gina Davis's oh, career. Oh, I, I wasn't even thinking about that. Because I was thinking about uh, Long Kiss Goodnight. And I was like, I thought... I did Rennie Harlan do Long Kiss Goodnight? He did. I know it's a Shane Black script. Yeah, it's a Shane Black script, and it's a uh, Shane Rennie Black. Harlan the movie. Shane Black beat Rennie Harlan on that equation. That's why I didn't know it was a Rennie Harlan movie. <laughs> well, yeah, because it sounds like a Shane Black movie. Yeah, like one hundred percent. Yeah, no, Cutthroat Island. Like that. That's why she like disappeared. That's really sad. That all. That's all it takes. Yeah, if you're a woman over thirty in Hollywood. Yeah, they're like one well, bad movie. Uh, off to the ranch with you. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, honey. Um, Gina Gina Davis had to go live with Grandma. And Grandma. Live. She'll she'll be on ABC for the short lived Commander in Chief. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. It's bullshit. So, like Gina Davis like, is probably one that you get me a little right re- because she was she was in hit after hit too. 
And like the fact that she could do anything, yeah. And she, she so many like she's funny and little, uh, not little big league, uh, different movie, a league of their own. Um, and yeah, like I, I feel like Cutthroat Island didn't kill Matthew Modine's career as much, and no one gave a shit about Matthew Modine. Yeah, like if anyone's true. career should have like ended after Cutthroat Island, Matthew Modine, so- who is known for like. Full Metal Jacket. And he's not the best part of that movie. Everyone else is. Yeah. Bump up the timeline a little bit on Cutthroat Island. And she would have... if Let's take her old career and bump it all up like 10 years. She would have just moved to indie movies. She would have become a Naomi Watts yeah. or whoever. That's just like, oh, now I'm going to work with uh, real filmmakers and make more interesting products than I... Or products. Make more interesting proje- projects than uh, I would have made... Uh, in Hollywood. Are you becoming that kind of film lover? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All movies are just products for your consumption, man. <laughs> That's not true art. Uh, um, just, to, just to circle back for one second, uh, Matthew Modine and Eric Stoltz star in a movie together. That's the worst movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Two middle-aged white guys no one really cares about is the name of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Matthew Modine is a really nice guy. And I, I noticed you're say not saying Stoltz. <laughs> Yeah, I, I noticed you're not saying Eric Stoltz is a nice guy. Oh, he almost God. ruined Back to the Future for us. <laughs> Eric Stoltz, America's greatest monster. Would it be weird if someone listening to this podcast like was like, "Fuck those guys"? No, yeah. Like, looks back at their Matthew Modine posters on the their bedroom wall, <laughs> and like a tear falls down. We publish our podcast and then we share it around with dissolve people like i'm sure that there's somebody with the opinion that eric stoltz is like the great forgotten actor of the 1990s well that person is wrong <laughs> let, <laughs> let us know in the comments do we yeah, have comments we didn't, we didn't forget him and we wish we could yeah like i said he's fine but don't he's tell me fine. that you're an Eric Stoltz fan because there's no movie that he's ever starred in that anyone cares about. Okay. It's so funny that, like, if I change my Twitter handle to Eric Stoltz fan, it would make me laugh, like, almost every day. I'll change it to Matthew Modine fan. <laughs> <laughs> and every day I'll just post pictures of Matthew Modine and you uh, you po- post pictures of Eric Stoltz. And then we'll, we'll do, a, like, a percentage of likes based on how many followers we have. And then we'll figure out who who's bigger out there. <laughs> or we could not yeah we could also not do that we need to have more paint fume uh, drinking episodes is what I yeah. am learning uh, yeah so yeah, Gene Davis is amazing um, we actually have to start running through some scenes are there any sort of moments Aaron that you want to call out because I think we've sort of reached um, we've sort of reached the 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 climax of the movie uh, in terms of, of events, but well, what in this movie do you want to specifically call out? We haven't even talked about special effects yet. Yeah, we haven't talked about amazing. special effects. Uh, I want to talk about Jeff Goldblum. Um, if you can name a better person to uh, actor to play an insect man, uh, let me just tell you, you can't. Uh, he, is, he is the best. There is no better person for this part. Yeah, like Brad Dorif would be a good insect man, but he wouldn't be able to pull He doesn't have the height. Sort of, he doesn't have he the weird, be- um, like, lanky... Like, like, him without his shirt on is both very in shape and looks like an alien. 
Yeah, Jeff Goldblum looks like a, he'd be one of those uh, Bergenworth college bugs. Like yeah, that's a reference for everybody. Mutation. That's that's a reference for the whole house. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love Bergenworth. It, but... <laughs> uh, we'll uh, put a picture from a Bloodborne in the show notes. Yeah, um, but uh, he, I think. Brad Dorif doesn't have the sort of um, offbeat sexiness that Jeff Goldblum had or has at this time. He can turn it on and off too. He starts out this movie like uh, he's not sexy at all. He's like he, he like he just kind of turns up his like mannerisms and he becomes like this kind of nebish anxiety ridden like this person is kind of like creepy. And then later on in the same movie, he kind of, you know, turns it up to charming and like he gets I can see why then people find him super sexy and then he turns it even more over and he becomes like this overly aggressive asshole. Like it's amazing how how he's able to like he looks different when his mannerisms are He's also aged really well, where, like, Nicolas Cage used to have a similar sort of energy, this sort of uh, weird, raw creepery to him. And then um, as years went on, that sort of got expressed in Nicolas Cage's features to all of us uh, genre fans' joy. Because now (laughs) when he's in these movies, he's just a very strange presence. But Jeff Goldblum just got handsomer. Yeah. He's much better looking in Jurassic Park and he's really good looking on the league and in uh, various Wes Anderson movies. Like he's just a, he, he got to keep looking good for every age. Yeah, he was he's in. our, he's our generation's Benjamin button. Uh, it does, yeah. it does help though. Uh, haircuts a big part of it. And I'll tell you what didn't age well, which is his hairstyle in this movie. It's very weird, and it and, and it makes it way creepier once his hair starts falling out, and it's just all he has left are these patchy, uh, patchy tufts falling off of his his head, mm-hmm. and it, it, he's just melting raw. It's very very strange. Yeah. So not only is Jeff Goldblum amazing in this movie, and this will kind of lead into the special effects discussion, he is so good at playing the different stages of the fly. Like when he becomes uh, super aggressive, when he stops being really human near the end of the transformation, when he's like a sad sack who has accept his, accepted his fate, um, he it's the makeup effects, you know, bring it home. But it doesn't work without Jeff Goldblum essentially like inhabiting a different person from scene to scene as you see the transformation progress. Yeah, and he and. and- the fly has an arc. It's not a. Uh, it's not. It's much more complicated than even um, the drug movie arc that you see in Scarface and in Goodfellas and such. Because this is a drug movie, I think. Um, as much as it's about disease, I think it's also about uh, substance abuse. And he uh, he doesn't just go you know up and then down and then he's at the bottom at the end of the movie. He goes up. And then he's, he's, you know, he's empowered, he's empowered. And then when they break up, he's down again. He's very down again. And then he starts to, uh, being a scientist, he starts to roll with his role, so to speak. So he, he starts to figure out that he's like, I am a unique thing that's never happened in the history of, of you know, living things. I'm I'm a hybrid species. And, you know, let's see where this, this shit goes. And he yeah. still has these, these facilities about him. And he... Uh, then he starts to perk up again, and he, you start to see his humanity again. He's less—he gets actually gets less feral for a little bit. And Jeff yeah. Goldblum 
rocks those changes so wonderfully. The scene where she comes over and she's expecting him to just be this like you're everybody is expecting him to be this um, sad lump sitting in the corner, but he's crawling on the ceiling and he's got a big dumb bug grin on his face. And he's just like, "Hey, how you doing?" Like, I I didn't know I could do this. Uh, and he's just crawling <laughs> the ceiling. Weird, and then, isn't and then it? He, yeah. And then he gleefully makes her film him as he's digesting his food. Yeah. So much so that the movie doesn't show it because it's fucking horrifying. Yeah. You know, if a Cronenberg movie isn't showing something that uh, David Cronenberg is like, nah, we're good. Yeah, that was all Mel Brooks. Um, yeah. Don't know. <laughs> Too far, Dave. Um, yeah. yeah, no. Don't you do know, anything to those donuts. Yeah. No, uh, no. Jeff, in this performance, it is, it is, a, it is a solid gold bloom performance. How, how long do you want to let the silence go on? I need a few more seconds. <laughs> to recover from solid gold, Bloom? Okay. So, uh, Jeff Goldblum goes through the, the arcs really well, and I think that uh, it's really, really hard to act in that kind of makeup. Particularly once they make him so hideous that I bet Jeff Goldblum had trouble looking at himself in the mirror. Did Jeff Goldblum tell you that? I said I bet, Aaron. Oh, I, I, missed, I, I missed the I bet. No, I, I, <laughs> I actually meant like, is there a commentary track for this I'm unaware of? That would be awesome. Yeah. I, it'd be awesome, especially if it was recorded post Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum divorce and they got them back in the room for this excuse. You're just, um, you're just trying to parent trap Gina yes. Davis and Jeff Goldblum for some yes. reason. Yes, and then maybe they can adopt me. Uh, um, they probably will. <laughs> That'll probably be their first act as a reunited couple. They probably have like other other spouses and kids. And they're probably so happy with whoever they're with. Yeah, the cruelest thing you ever said was to give me hope that Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum could get back together and then adopt me. Um, that was the cruelest thing I've ever said. Oh yeah, gotta step up my um, game. <laughs> I don't want to give Gina Davis short shrift though because we I talked think about her at the beginning. But I think her performance we need to tap into a little bit as well because she she has a, uh, you know, I'm an 80s woman competence to her, but it's not a facade. She's a human being. She has, you know, weaknesses. She's self-aware. Everything bad that happens to her, you know, in, in her life, she's like, fuck, I got to deal with that. But I'm just, you know, they're both so career driven and ambitious. And you figure out both Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis's characters, Seth and uh, Ronnie, are so career driven so early on. And you you understand that immediately in their first interaction when she basically, he's like, oh, I didn't know you were recording. And she's like, of course I was recording. And then he tries to get her to stop recording. And she kind of leaves with her like cute little smirk. Um... She's so career-driven and so ambitious that even though she's into this guy, she's not going to, like, put it aside just because she saw a cute guy. And he's not going to, like, throw all of his work away just because, you know, a cute girl came back to his his, uh, warehouse apartment. Although it makes it clear that that's all he wanted. He was just trying to use his teleportation devices as a way to pick up women. (laughs) Not Oh, yeah, and she understood that. Yeah, yeah, and not... Well, because, no, because she's, like... Well, I'm a journalist. And he's like, I did not know that. Like, well, then why are you only showing her your teleporter machines? Uh, which, you know, I guess you could say that's kind of uh, that's kind of a creepy thing to do. But maybe that comes back around. Although, I guess, I don't know. If I had teleporter machines, that's a, it's a good icebreaker. I feel like it's different to, like, it's, lying to women is awful. 
Yeah, if you so have like, trying to so making up the fact that you have teleporter machines, bad. Yeah, that's Barney Stinson. Yeah, but if you legitimately have something to impress somebody with, yeah, okay, using using that to impress them, that's not that's not sexually predatory. You're just trying to look cool, which is like what you do at every job the first day. You're like, you don't just like walk up. To I have a start. teleporter machine. <laughs> like that's how we got to work today and like we saw you pull up in a hyundai yeah well that actually um, that actually speaks to his entire motivation uh, which kind of gets underplayed in this movie but it comes up a couple times his, he wants a hyundai uh, his motivation for inventing teleporter machines is he hates all vehicles and doesn't like driving which is I, the best i mean that's a solution driven person yeah that's the sort of thing where the the internet would pick up on and just make fun of mercilessly if that movie came out today yeah like like, oh, he wants a teleporter because he gets carsick. Like, this movie fucking yeah. sucks. He says like, it He says it specifically, I hate all vehicles. And then later, Ronnie throws it in his face. Like, some, says something to the line of, uh, you invented this just so you don't have to drive. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, which is funny. Like, there's a there's a motivation, um, you know, in, in the 1958 fly, he's, like, doing it. Because he believes in expanding uh, science. And this is very much more of like a Reagan thing where it's like, I want a convenience in my life I don't have. And I want to not do yeah. things. Like Reagan wanted a Death Star. Yep. He saw yeah, he saw it on the movies. Uh, and he wanted a Death Star. Yeah, this is where we introduce our new segment. Uh, how, is the, how is this 1980s horror movie about Ronald Reagan? And I would say it is about... Uh, when you see a when you see a problem, create a solution. Uh, no matter what you have to do to get it done. That's a great point, Aaron. Thank you so much for for bringing home that new segment right in the middle of the show. Yeah, just throw out. That's I mean, really, how you do segments is already kind of start talking about it, and then say it in the middle, and then say one more sentence. That's that's segments one on one. You're just a studied podcast man, yeah. and I, I I really appreciate your discipline. Yeah, that was just... that was our new segment uh, called Segments One on One, where we talk about the core concept of segments. Yeah, that was a uh, great great app. <laughs> great app. Great I'm, now I'm just now I'm just wholesale stealing uh, bits from other podcasts. <laughs> Um, okay, so what scene do you want to call out or scenes? Let's talk about let's talk about the monkey death scene because uh, I actually think this movie handles the uh, animal testing stuff a lot better than the original one does. Uh, I think that the fact that and they removed a, a scene where uh, Seth combines two animals and he has to kill it. I think that was very wise because I think you need to be sort of on the curious path of science with Seth as long as possible. Um, and even towards the end when he's a freak, like the movie kind of wants you to become a scientist and be like, well, should Seth die or should Seth just ride this baby out and see where it goes? And then as soon as he threatens other people, that's when you're like, oh, he, he can't exist in a modern world. He needs to be in a zoo or something. The movie kind of wants us to watch him like we're safe observers in a, in a scientific environment. Um, but the scene I want to talk about is the monkey death because it both shows us his incredible ambition, which in the original movie they showed us by having the doctor who's also incredibly ambitious and charming and, you know, he flirts with his wife like he's not some nerd who can't, like, talk to women and doesn't know how to have a family. Like, both of them are 
interested in human contact. They're not introverts. The monkey death scene teaches us that he is so ambitious that he's willing to risk these animals' lives, yes. Um, but when the experiment goes awry, he's equally disappointed that it failed and that a monkey lost its life in a horrible, horrible fucking way because of it. Let me ask, um, let me ask you a question. Where do you think he's getting all those monkeys? <laughs> I don't know. He, he says he basically hires out like he sent away for all the parts and then he puts them together. And he says that he like sent off or she, she says that she sent off like his hair to be. In, oh, no, he's going to send the monkey off to be inspected. Mm-hmm. So like he must have some but, sort of connections. Like where's where's this monkey supply? He's just pulling. Yeah. Like if that next if number two monkey didn't make it, does he just have another one ready? Because he had that second one super easy. And he said, like, your brother. I'm sorry what I did to your brother. Yeah. And at no point, though, it's not like he got the first two at once. Because in between Monkey 1's death and Monkey's 2 survival, we didn't see that second monkey just roaming the uh, roaming the apartment. So I have to imagine that if that second monkey, uh, something happened to it, he has a monkey dealer where he just goes pick up and picks up another one of the same monkeys. And his ambitions are so high that he's willing to wipe out an entire monkey family for it. He's, you know, he, he couldn't just be like, I'm going to select another one from a different family strain. I think you're taking uh, the brother line a little too literally. I think it's 100% literal. You think that's because he wanted to make sure that more than one family didn't suffer. Um monkey family didn't suffer he's like look i've already killed a member of this family they're already going through a harrowing ordeal number two will be easier (laughs) number number two it's just gonna add to the sadness like what do you want what's what's better one one monkey family that's not sad going to sad or one monkey family that's already sad going to very sad yeah think about the roller coaster effect um losing a second monkey son is only a slight dip, but for a losing your first one is a massive valley. Yeah. So, you know. I mean, they could have had kids, too. Like, you, you, when you're a, just because you're a son of someone doesn't mean you, you might not have your own family. Hey, I, I'm a scientist, so science and research. I can assume that he has parents because he exists, but I can't assume that he has children. I mean, it's a fair, it's a fair point. I, you lawyered me good. Um, so changing subjects, the bloody hand is good. That's a good touch. When that the, is a good touch. When the and bloody the hand slams just, against uh, the... And the thing just writhing, and it's, it's really, really... There's, you know what, really, there's, there's more jump scares. I've seen this movie so many times. There's more jump scares than I remember. Uh, yeah, there's even a jump scare when the monkey comes out alive that a monkey runs straight out at yep. him and then hugs him. So that's like a series of jump scares because like... A, something is coming out of the teleporter, and then B, you don't know if it's going to be friendly. Like that's that's kind of two that's kind of two the two jump scares in a row where you're like, oh shit, oh shit. Yep. And my my wife who watched it with me, I think it's the first movie that she watched of ours that she liked. P.S. Um, she she she's not she doesn't scream at movies really, and she let out a big one when uh, Brundlefly breaks through the window at the hospital. Oh God, yeah, that's a big that's a big scary moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, this, the special effects in this movie are really amazing. And I think that they're, um, this movie is, is one of Cronenberg's most mainstream movies, uh, in a lot of ways. And one of them is that I think that the horror is there for a very 
specific purpose. Like the death of the monkey is supposed to shock the fuck out of you because you're saying like, oh, this is what could happen to all the characters. But the, the experiment kind of has to keep going on. This could happen to any of the characters if they go into this thing while it's still not fully functioning. And uh, without seeing the horrific after effects of what happens, I just don't think it would work as well. I think if you're just like the monkey, if he just walked out of the teleporter and he's like, the monkey's dead, you'd just be like, oh, that seems kind of chill. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of, just kind of dead. He's, he's not, he's non monkey now. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to devolve into a bigger point when we're trying to wrap this up. I, I will just say that's why it does bother me so much when people like, it feels like the concept of a jump scare is completely derided. Uh, I haven't seen the new Blair Witch movie, but I just, I remember like so many jump scares and I'm always like, you know what? As long as like, it's part of a balanced cinematic experience jump scares are fine <laughs> like yeah i like i like i like different kinds of jokes i like dumb cheap jokes and i like um more evolved sort of subtle jokes yeah like, that's why i like 30 rock so much is it has a wide palette and i think that i'm not saying that you know jump scares are inherently stupid yeah um, just like anything if you over rely on like sex jokes in your movie it's gonna see juvenile when all your movie has to offer is jump scares you know it may at some point get eye rolling for you but like it, I I feel like we sw- as like a as like a cinephilia culture, it feels like we swung too far to. Oh, there was a jump scare in that movie. It also goes into the aspect of people don't like being consciously manipulated by movies, and jump scares are one of the most naked manipulations that a movie could pull off. But I kind of think that movies are inherently manipulative, and once you accept that or embrace that. Jump scares become a lot less annoying. Yeah, that's like someone's falling down in a movie. You say, well, that's an easy laugh. Yeah, it is an easy laugh. It so, works. Yeah. Did you laugh? Yeah, that's that's what's it important. Worked. Yeah, like I, I'm way more I'm way more critical of stuff that's trying to be manipulative and then And doesn't work. Yeah. There's nothing yes. worse than like people clearly trying to manipulate you too. It's like you either you either come at me directly or manipulate me and make it work. But when someone's like actively trying to manipulate the way that you're supposed to think it and it's so uh, obvious, that's when it's like you're, you're not. I get it then in that in those cases, because you're not just like, no, I'm not doing what you want me to do, but also fuck you. Yeah, it's a uh, a naked manipul- manipulation kind of undermines your intelligence. So yeah, that, I, I totally get that. But um. But yeah, they, we haven't talked about the special effects that openly about it, but the, the fly sort of devolving what's, sequence. Yeah, what's the grossest one for you? Uh, fingernails yep. falling off. Oh, yeah. It's My not- girlfriend didn't watch the movie because I remembered the teeth thing, and she really, really hates teeth falling out. Do, tell her to not do mushrooms. Yeah. Just <laughs> a, a life hack for yeah. her. Yeah. God, the 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 teeth falling out would have really fucking bugged her, but the the fingernails uh, got me really bad. Yeah, they um, got everyone I was watching. I actually, I was I watched it with my brother and my wife, and it's because they keep going back to it. It's not like the fingernail comes off and then they end it. He then he's like, "Well, let me just squeeze some more and see what else happens." Like, but it, well, it's yeah, I like that though because it's it's not. Oh, like I a do too. Porn movie where I like because it's not like a torture porn movie where they're like. If you saw them pull off everybody's fingernails, you'd be like, come on, one was enough, right? Like an old boy, they, they pry off, you know, one of his finger or they pry off someone's teeth. But like, you don't need to see him take out 
all each of the teeth like you kind of get it um in this it's it's um the cutting away kind of adds the effect and this the fact that it keeps going on he's sort of a a, a scientific observer he's trying to like he's like oh what are, did they all come off like this like is this just part of the process what's underneath the fingernail what's going to replace the fingernail is it going to be claws like is it going to be talons like what the what's happening to my body like he's he just like us is sort of a, a horrified observer of his own yeah day. yeah uh what i said about i'll see what happens is the exact what he's thinking he wants to know what happens yeah. So it's it's not yeah it's not piling on it's okay so my fingernail fell off what would happen if I do this yeah like exactly what you said he's being he's being a scientist and yeah the the special effects are impressive all the way through the only one that's kind of a little wonky is the final uh, fly monster um, but I think you know it's you you move away from like makeup effects and go to uh, I don't know model effects or animatronic effects and so it's, just, it's never going to be as uh realistic or visceral as um the the amazing makeup effects they do in this movie yeah i, I kind of see when the claw grabs the hand i could kind of see a little johnny five in there with covered in meat like they just took a bunch of roast beef and wrapped it around a johnny johnny five hand equally horrifying um, equally horrifying if johnny five was made of meat man that would actually be like the movie Hardware, right? Or the movie Virus, I guess, would be Johnny Five covered in meat. Oh, my God. Who references Virus? The movie fucking blows. It's so no bad. One, 1998. Yeah, I saw it in theaters. Why? It was rated R. It was a sci-fi movie. I've told you, like, sci-fi movies, a rated R movie I could go see with my parents' permission, like, done. You, yeah. I'll be there all day. Yeah, so I have one last thing to talk about, and then we can do final thoughts. It's pretty insignificant. Uh, but I do want to mention it, uh, and that is the arm wrestling scene, which, uh, besides being a fun surprise for everyone watching, uh, especially, so I watched it with two people that had never seen it, and they did not expect that to happen, and both of them kind of did the <gasps> little gasp, which was fun to see. Uh, any, anytime you can watch people react to your favorite movies is, is a fun experience. I highly recommend forcing your friends to, to, to watch all of your favorites, but I gotta say, what was the 80s obsession with arm wrestling, like, when has the last time arm wrestling has ever come up in your day-to-day life, Peter? But then, like, 50% of all movies in the 80s was arm wrestling related. Yeah, you don't – you you watch your over-the-tops and your roadhouses and uh, you don't think that that's going to start popping into your The Flieses. And uh, all of a sudden, you get the best arm wrestling scene in any movie because it's over in 10 seconds. Yeah. And it ends with gore. So – because arm wrestling, I feel like boxing is inherently cinematic. Arm wrestling is inherently not cinematic. But did you ever, did you do it with your friends as like a kid? I've done it recently and I did it as a kid. I did, did it you do it recently? Because it just, it never comes up for me anymore. I did it recently because we referenced the movie over the top. Okay, so it was still the 80s fault. Yes, it's still, <laughs> it's still a byproduct of the 80s. Early maybe. 90s, maybe. Yeah, it was a – the issue was that uh, – wasn't that we – one of us was like, which one of us is stronger? We were like, so is it fun to watch? Like, what is it like? And then me and me and a friend were like, all right, let's see what it's like. And then we did it. And which, which one it of you was stronger? <laughs> it was a stalemate for minutes and then I overcame him. Like, it was – it took forever, dude. Can, can we call him and confirm the story? Yes. <laughs> it took – 
forever and it's also it's also sucks because like your natural inclination and this is something that i was doing is to lift lift off the table lift your elbow off the table so i like you like want to hold down your arm with the other arm but you can't do that you're just like you're like half focused on keeping your arm on the table like Arm wrestling blows. Yeah, so it's Jeff te- Goldblum made the right move by shattering that man's fucking bones. Yeah, it's terrible. It's a waste of time. And I, I do remember that. And then I remember, like, most arm wrestling matches. And, like, I, I do remember doing a decent amount of it, like, late 80s, early 90s. Like, kids did it at school all the time. I always lost. It was terribly embarrassing for me. Um, but, you know, first, second, third graders are the worst when you lose any sort of, like, feat of strength. But um, you, I bet you beat them nowadays. I don't think that's true either. But if they were still a third grader, I mean, yeah, I'd be escorted out of Wilmore Elementary School very quickly. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I could totally take them. Um, just need my time machine. So yeah, it's it, so there was, but I remember most of those matches were just a lot of yelling of you, you moved your elbow. You moved your arm, and then, like, they did that thing where you had to, like, hold your other arms or your, your hands underneath your arm wrestling arms. So, like, you couldn't get any tracks and you couldn't go down all the way because your other hands were interconnected underneath the arc of your arm wrestling arms. It was just, it was just garbage. I'm glad that uh, fad died out, I think. <laughs> I don't go to I elementary hope- schools and ask kids if they're arm wrestling. <laughs> I hope that this movie helped uh, kill arm wrestling. I, I mean... It's a great movie. If it could do that one thing, best movie of all time. Although Over the Top <laughs> did come out the year after, which really hurts your uh, hypothesis. The one thing about the movie is that it has a few moments where Jeff Goldblum is ranting. And Jeff Goldblum does the Cronenbergian, this is philosophy of human meat uh Rants where he says like the sick gray fear of the flesh and he, he's like yelling sort of shit like that at gina davis and she's just she's smart enough to keep up but she's like you have cocaine energy because yeah. the movie is a it's a drug movie and she, she's watching his him get uh more powerful than she's ever seen him before and he's being more powerful than he's ever seen before he feels like a god like you would on on drugs particularly cocaine and he he starts rattling off these rants and he's like super impatient with people and he's like yells at a server and um, it reminds me of in a lot of other uh, Cronenberg movies where there's just sometimes these blocks of philosophical rants mm-hmm. and like Existence has some in them Cosmopolis has it to a fault where Cosmopolis has so many philosophical rants jammed up against one another I cannot digest half of them mm-hmm um, and it's just thing that Cronenberg is very comfortable doing that I think would, would be classified as, you know, bad writing, but I really enjoy is when he's just willing to dole out these sort of picture sentences, these very vivid uh, images of, um, what his sort of body horror is in words. Yeah. Uh, and here's a fun fact about Cronenberg. If you play I Spy with him, 99 times out of 100, the answer is going to be flesh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Everything is flesh to yeah, this guy. He really, he really likes that word. Um, and it is a weird, like it doesn't come up. It's not skin. It does have a very tactile quality to just the way... It's said the way that kind of like wilting sh ends like flesh. It's it, yeah. you know it, it it definitely it's a word that creates a feeling, and I think that's why he uses it so often 
in movies, but you're right that that rant gets super written. Uh, it still works because Goldblum is like the if you if you need to give written dialogue to someone that sounds written, give it to Walken or Goldblum, and you're gonna be you're gonna be ninety nine percent of the time in good shape. Uh, Goldblum is gonna make it sound like this. He is sort of um, philosophical and he's sort of scholarly, um, but with this tinge of sort of you know unhinged madness where he, he you know. He's reciting something that he truly believes, and it's not the normal way that people talk, but it's the way that he talks. Yeah. Communicates a lot about the character. I can't believe that if Jeff, if Jeff Goldblum wanted to be the richest man in the world, he needs to make a podcast called Jeff Goldblum Yells Science at You, and um, like everyone's in. I would be so into that. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum ranting is one of the few joys in life. And then like when he starts like... Whenever he starts hitting his chest, too, that's just great. I love when he gets so riled up that, like, his mouth can't even contain it anymore. So he starts, like, I don't know, beating himself. I, it's whatever it is, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, he's a, he's a really great physical actor. I, I, I think that in this movie, he gets a chance to shine in everything that makes Jeff Goldblum, um, wonderful. He gets to be a great physical actor with his fly makeup and, you know, how he has to sort of skitter along the ground and do some sort of uh, physical work. Uh, he gets to be charming and seductive as well as, you know, ugly and mean and rude. And Jeff Goldblum kind of got to do everything in this movie. I would see why I could totally see why he wanted to make this movie. Yeah. I'm wondering who got recruited first, him or, or Gina Davis. You think they were a package deal? It'd be kind of an interesting thing for a director to pull, especially if they were shooting on a short schedule, to be like, you know what? I'm just going to exploit your relationship. So this is probably um, this is probably a half-remembered bit of trivia for from 15 years ago that is probably wrong, uh, which is really the best trivia that you can give out. But I seem to remember something about Cronenberg seeing those two. Like, he cast one of them. I don't remember which one. And then saw those two interact in the chemistry that they had and then decided to cast both of them. So I don't remember who was cast first, but I do feel like the fact that they were both in the movie is directly related to the fact that they had such a natural uh, chemistry, which was important to Cronenberg because uh, they, they he needed to establish a bond quickly in order for that to hold the rest of the movie after things take a very sudden uh, turn south. Yeah. I think that's a really great way of summarizing how their relationship works. Yeah, I think that they, and that may they, be true or maybe something I made up. Yeah, at least it, how it appears to work. Yeah. So find out for yourself, folks. <laughs> go, hey, go, uh, after all, Gina Davis. <laughs> yeah. After after all this time where we did research for you, we were training you to do the research yourself. So go <laughs> fly away. That's a pun. You can, you know, you can give a man a bucket of research. He'll he'll have research for one movie, but you can teach a man to do research. You can teach her, teach a man to build a bucket to hold to, to hold all the research. Yeah, you know how you keep research in buckets. Yep, I do. I went to school, Peter. That's where that's what they taught me. Yeah, at the research school for buckets. <laughs> um, My computer almost had a drink spit it all over it. Um spitted yep all right time to end this <laughs> uh, <laughs> spit spot it's definitely spit, spit. 
yeah, so, you know, I don't have that long of final thoughts. My guess is, if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen this movie. This is one of those weird movies that feels like it's every bit uh, independent filmmaker's vision that was released by a major studio, and the audience loved it. Uh, So much so that um, the last thing I'll note is that every the one thing I forget every time I watch this movie is that the line, be afraid, be very afraid, is from it. And every time I hear it, I'm like, holy shit, that's where this line's from. But that tells you, like, this movie had a catchphrase that caught on nationally that people are still aware of to this day, even if they don't remember where the movie, uh, what movie it came from. That's how big this movie was. Um, that's pretty amazing. And yeah. the movie has, has infiltrated culture just like the first one has. It's It's been a Simpsons parody and such. Yeah. Yeah. And people, I mean, to this day, since this movie came out, people don't like flies. <laughs> Before then, flies were huge. Yeah, that's how much it impacted. It was the style of the time. You have ten flies <laughs> yeah. following you all yeah. the time. <laughs> there was a cottage industry. Raid was founded based on the national backlash to this movie. We need to have less flies. And people were like, are those not cool anymore? Yep. That's Gina Davis says no. Yep. This movie that was by the, the Raid. This movie was actually made for... Uh, <laughs> sponsored sponsored by Raid. Sponsored by Raid. Yeah. That'd be the great Raid. if it was like one of those uh, yeah movies that were just made by a company. <laughs> but they made like this amazingly artful, visceral horror film as a result. Um, Raid kills your fly lover dead. Yeah. Or just your real lover. Probably. Or just your it's, real lover. It's poison. It's, it, poison works. Yeah, don't spray anyone you know, guys, with uh, with Raid. That's bad news. Unless you want them dead. Oh, yeah, then that's a great way. Yeah, I can't endorse that specifically, but I mean, it's Th- kind of common it, sense. It's a tool at your disposal. For people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, this movie's fantastic. Um, uh, just, just great around, across the board. You should, if you somehow haven't seen it and then listen to this entire podcast, uh, what, again, what are you doing? Get your yeah. life together. Yeah, you goon. Yep. Whoa. <laughs> um, let's, let's not go that far. <laughs> <laughs> You're a real Sean William Scott right now. Yeah. Um, what a rascal! Yeah, I, I think I think we've we've kind of summed it up. I, I think it's a beautiful human story that touches kind of every aspect of what I want a horror movie to touch. It's scary on a human level, and it's scary on a visceral, visual level, and, and, and tonally, it's just a blast to watch. Yep. So uh, next week is our big horror anthology episode that'll drop on Halloween, hopefully. <laughs> And uh, my entries for it, if you're trying to watch beforehand, uh, are Safe Haven from VHS2, Meet Sam from Trick or Treat, Blind Alleys from Tales from the Crypt, and an honorary mention for Cut from Three Extremes. Aaron's list is going to be The Raft from Creepshow 2, Twilight Zone opening segment, and a segment from Tales from Halloween called Bad Seed. And then his honorary segment is going to be Tales from the Dark Side, the Gargoyle segment. Um, yeah, so that should be a really, really fun episode. Yeah, and even though we even though we kind of picked lists, like Safe Haven would definitely... Like Safe Haven's my number one on any horror anthology. It's probably yours, too, if you're listening and you've seen it. Uh, so we're just, we're just trying to figure out a way to talk about uh, shorts that we think are, as Peter said, like the best that their movies have to offer. Uh, whether the movies as a whole are great uh, or or not great. So, uh, yeah, we're really excited. Um, I've already watched actually four of the eight again for this for next week. So 
I'm super excited. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun time, um, and it'll be off format. So we'll probably just launch right into it to make sure we get through everything and give everything its fair. Uh, yeah, if, fair we, shake. if we keep it to twenty minutes per short, uh, that's a two-hour and forty-minute episode. <laughs> <laughs> so strap in, guys. Uh, yeah. So, anyways, yeah. So we're really excited about that, and this this has been the end of Take Two month. Uh, this is our fourth. Hold on, July. Yeah, it's our fourth theme month. We yeah. did it. <laughs> we, we done it. We done it. Uh, and so uh, our theme months are going to take a drastic turn uh, in November with 90s Nostalgia November. And the order that we're going to be talking about those movies is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Rick Kelly. Fools Rush In, the much, uh, the much movie that people are aware of with Matthew Perry and Salma Hayek. Uh, followed by Super Mario Brothers with uh, Elizabeth Lund. And then finishing off the month... Uh, we'll be doing The Rescuers Down Under with Tom Peeler. So really excited for that. That's going to be a big change for what we've been talking about. Uh, but we're really excited to try something new and talk about all movies that uh, we loved and haven't seen in a long time. And we're going to see what we think about them now. Yeah, I am very, very excited to uh, see what November holds because it's all going to be very off format. So let's make sure that we uh, have a lot to say about Fool's Rush In. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't I don't know what that I I like it, but I haven't seen I, it. I liked it last in, time I saw it. Yeah, it's been probably seventeen years. But um, Matthew Perry has only grown in our uh, esteem <laughs> since nineteen ninety eight. So how what could go wrong? What could go wrong, Aaron? Well, All right. um, yeah. Thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, Aaron, thank you for uh, see. It's hard to do buzzing. It's so hard me. to do. You, you mock me, but look episode. look at what's coming out of your mouth right now. It's garbage. <laughs> Good night. We gotta stay. to we love to watch if you want to get in touch with us please reach out to us at either our website wltwpodcast.com or our facebook group facebook.com backslash we love to watch and uh, yeah reach out to us give us some feedback give us some support uh, suggest movies for the show all that we are also available on soundcloud TuneIn, stitcher and itunes thanks for listening